and welcome back to Stories New and Old with me, Alyssa. Today, we're going to learn all about the history of libraries. First, we're going to start off with a short exploration of libraries around the world throughout history. Then we're going to dive deeper into some of the most interesting libraries and people who were involved with those libraries in the United States. As always, before we really get into it, I'm going to share why I got interested in this topic in the first place. Growing up, I only had one car in my family, um, which meant that when my father went to work, my mother and I could only go where our feet would take us, or more accurately, where her feet would take us and where my carriage (laughs) would take us. One of the places we went most often was the public library. It was a place for us to hang out, a place for story time, and a place where we found endless entertainment through all of the books. I remember always seeing my parents reading when I was growing up, and I would default to curling up in a chair with a book every spare moment I had as a kid. Um, Whether I was at home or when I was in school, I was that kid who was trying to read books under their desk during class. Um, I've always been drawn to libraries, and I love that you can go shopping for books without spending a dime. Living in New York City has given me access to one of the greatest library systems in the world, and I definitely take full advantage of it. I was recently wondering about the history of libraries and when this concept truly took off, so that's what I decided to explore today. So let's start out with that short history of libraries that I mentioned at the start of our episode. The first libraries appeared 5,000 years ago in Southwest Asia's Fertile Crescent. You probably remember learning about the Fertile Crescent in grammar school, but as a refresher, it was an area that ran from Mesopotamia to the Nile in Africa. It was known as the Cradle of Civilization, and the Fertile Crescent was the birthplace of writing sometime before 3000 BC. The libraries that existed in the Fertile Crescent were archives. They mainly consisted of records of commercial transactions or inventories. So it was more so a record-keeping kind of scenario than what you might think of today with a library housing books of every variety. Libraries really started expanding as a place for scholarship, and a library that you might have heard of is the Library of Alexandria. The Library of Alexandria was in Egypt and was likely built sometime between 284 to 246 BC by King Ptolemy II. There were a number of reasons to build a library at this time, and some of these included enhancing a city's prestige, attracting scholars, and providing practical assistance in ruling and governing the kingdom. So this was not the first library in this ancient world, uh, but it ends up being the biggest and the most renowned. It was unprecedented because of the scope and the scale of the ambition of the the builders. And Ptolemy, I said the second, was the one who started it, but there were many Ptolemies that came after him that continued this onward. The whole goal was to produce a repository of all knowledge. So like I said, very ambitious. To support this endeavor, they were well positioned as Egypt was an ideal habitat for a papyrus plant, um, which provided a monopoly on materials that were needed to amass this knowledge repository. 
The Library of Alexandria wasn't affiliated with any particular philosophical school, so anyone who studied there had a good amount of academic freedom. But even though they had academic freedom, um, they were still subject to the authority of the king. And there was one legend I read about that was kind of (laughs) a bit mind-blowing to me. Well, I shouldn't even say mind-blowing, let's be honest. In all of my previous episodes, we talk about how wild things were back in the day. But let's talk about this legend. So... There was a subject um, who was a poet who wrote an obscene epigram making fun of Ptolemy II for marrying his sister. It said that Ptolemy had the guy jailed, and then after he escaped from jail, he had him sealed into a lead jar and dropped him into the sea. (laughs) So uh, he was not somebody who could take a joke. But what became of the Library of Alexandria? Um, Despite the widespread modern belief that the Library of Alexandria was burned once and completely destroyed, it actually gradually declined over the course of several centuries. There was a big fire that did happen near to the library um, when Julius Caesar invaded during a civil war, but it wasn't like one big event. There's another great library that I want to talk about uh, because it's one that I've actually been able to see in real life. The Library of Celsus is an ancient Roman building in Ephesus, Turkey. The building was completed during the reign of Roman Emperor Hadrian, and it's considered an architectural marvel and is one of the only remaining examples of great libraries of the ancient world located in the Roman Empire. It was the third largest library in the Greco-Roman world behind Alexandria um, and one other, and it's believed to have held around 12,000 scrolls. The interior of the library and its contents were destroyed in a fire that resulted either from an earthquake or from an invasion, um, and the facade was destroyed by an earthquake in the 10th or 11th century. It lay in ruin for centuries until the facade was re-erected by archaeologists between 1970 and 1978. Aside from public libraries in the early 80s, um, private libraries also rose in popularity. I was trying to get a sense of what people thought of private libraries, and I came across this observation from Seneca, a Stoic philosopher. He was looking at it and kind of saying, you know, that libraries are really showy, that the people who own them might be illiterate and who can scarcely read the titles of the books, um, never mind the entirety of the books themselves. Um, And it's quoted that he said, By now, like bathrooms and hot water, a library is got up as standard equipment for a fine house. So there were some mixed thoughts on if it was all just for show versus if the people were actually getting value out of these libraries. And there is so much more that we could go into around the history of libraries. We could talk about what was going on in Asia and the Middle East. Um, We could go into the Middle Ages and the Renaissance in Europe. But instead, in the interest of time, we're going to fast forward to the 17th and 18th centuries in what is known as the Golden Age of Libraries. So there was a library in Lincolnshire in England that was founded in 1598, and this library is considered the ancestor of public libraries because patrons were not required to be a member of a particular college or church to be allowed to use the library. 
This library had over 350 books, and this included both Catholic and Protestant books. Um, and this was considered pretty unique for the time because religious conflicts were happening during these Reformation years. So speaking of conflict, this golden age was not just some like wonderful time of a great expansion of libraries and everyone's learning and happy. Um, it was also a time where power, wealth, and knowledge were being redistributed as the wars of the Reformation were going on. Armies were taking over territory, and when they were doing that, they were plundering books from monastery libraries, um, and they were getting moved all around Europe. At the start of the 18th century, libraries were becoming increasingly public, and they were more frequently lending libraries. So this 18th century time period really saw the switch from closed parochial libraries to the more commonly recognized lending libraries. And before this time, um, in, when the, you were dealing with parochial libraries or private libraries, um, there were some methods that they put in place to make sure that the general public or even the members weren't going to destroy books, damage them, run off with them. And it was very common for libraries to actually chain the books to desks where people wanted to read them. And I also came across this um, story of a library in Ireland that went so far as to lock people in cages while they were reading rare books to ensure that they did not walk off with them. <laughs> um, now, as you might have guessed, I have been building us up to talk about my favorite time period and my favorite country. So let's go to revolutionary America. The first library in America was the Harvard Library, and it ended up growing to be the largest library in British America with 5,000 volumes by 1764. Unfortunately, a fire struck later that same year and the library was destroyed. Um, the university worked to rebuild the library and to get the collection back to where it was after the fire. And just like the war that was going on in Europe during the Reformation and how that helped libraries to grow and for books to be redistributed, it was a very similar scenario in the U.S. during the Revolutionary War. So as loyalists were fleeing Massachusetts during and after the Revolutionary War, um, many of the books that were left behind ended up being donated to the Harvard Library collection. One of my favorite guys, Benjamin Franklin, helped to establish the first subscription library in colonial British America. So what is a, a subscription library? This is a library where you would pay to be a member um, and get privileges to borrow the books. Franklin and his friends would meet on Fridays to discuss politics, science, and philosophy, and they called themselves the Junto Club, um, and they were also known as the Leather Apron Club. Pretty soon they started sharing books with one another and they decided, you know what, we should have our meetings happen in one place where we can all store our books so we have one collective place or one library. In 1731, 50 members contributed money to establish the Library Company of Philadelphia. They would pay an initial fee and then they would have annual dues to be part of the club. 
So from a library standpoint, of course, this is very interesting, but I also was curious about these Friday discussions about politics, science, and philosophy. And I found that there were a series of questions that the members would ask one another during each meeting. And I want to read a few of them to you. So one question, the first kind of question to kick off the meeting was, have you met with anything in the author you last read remarkable or suitable to be communicated to the Junto? particularly in history, morality, poetry, physics, travels, mechanic arts, or other parts of knowledge. So this was like the opening question of, have you been reading anything interesting lately that we would all want to know about? Another question was, what new story have you lately heard agreeable for telling in conversation? So this is saying like, what have you come across lately that makes a good anecdote for us to be able to learn from you and use in our own conversations? Hath any citizen in your knowledge failed in his business lately, and what have you heard of the cause? So if people are screwing up, why are they screwing up? Let's talk about it so that we don't do the same thing. (laughs) Have you lately heard of any citizen thriving well, and by what means? Have you lately heard how any present rich man here or elsewhere got his estate? So for things that are going fabulous, how is that happening and what can we learn? And I loved this. I thought this was just such a fun way to start conversation. And it kind of makes me want my own Junto Club to be like, who are the people who are doing the best and how can I be like them? The last thing related to this Junto club that I want to share with you is the oath that they would uh, that they would take. So it was a series of questions and answers. So here it goes. This is the oath of the Junto. Have you any particular disrespect to any present members? I have not. Do you sincerely declare that you love mankind in general of what profession or religion so over? I do. Do you think any person ought to be harmed in his body, name, or goods for mere speculative opinions or his external way of worship? No. Do you love truth's sake, and will you endeavor impartially to find and receive it yourself and communicate it to others? Yes. So anyway, clearly you can see I'm like fangirling over Benjamin Franklin and anything that he does, but particularly I would have loved to be part of this group. Now, while not all libraries have had this level of engagement from its members, um, and they weren't all born out of clubs, the idea of subscription libraries really rose in popularity and were established all across the United States colonies, or I guess I shouldn't say United States, the American colonies before it became the United States. After the Revolutionary War, the library company served members of the United States Congress um, until the capital of the United States was moved to Washington, D.C. The current library company of Philadelphia is still around um, and is now a research library. It doesn't have a circulating collection, but it is open to the public. So if you find yourself in Philadelphia, you could go and visit Ben Franklin's original library. Now, going back for a second to the members of Congress and how they were using the Library Company of Philadelphia, but what happened when the uh, capital was moved to D.C.? Well, surprise, surprise, the love of my life, John Adams, was involved. Uh, The Library of Congress was established on April 24th, 1800, when President John Adams signed an act of Congress, um, and part of that legislation appropriated $5,000 for the purchase of such books as may be necessary for the use of Congress and for fitting up a suitable apartment for containing them. Um, books were ordered from London and um, and really 
they were kind of accumulating them all across the United States. Um, but the collection ended up consisting of 740 books and three maps that were housed in the new capital. The Library of Congress became the world's biggest library and continues to hold that title with 167 million items. Um, That's over 39 million books and other print materials as part of that. Also, independently, um, John Adams owned more than 3,000 volumes, which were entrusted to the Boston Public Library in 1893. He was not only a bibliophile, um, but he was also an amateur librarian. He maintained his collection with rigor, and he even opened his library up to the public. We're going to fast forward one more time to the last topic that we'll talk about today, about libraries in the United States. Because no conversation on libraries would be complete without talking about Andrew Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie was a Scottish-American industrialist and philanthropist. He led the expansion of the American steel industry in the late 19th century, and he became one of the richest men in America's history. A Carnegie library is a library that is built with money donated by Carnegie, as you would expect, um, and a total of 2,509 Carnegie libraries were built between 1883 and 1929. 1,689 of those were in the United States, 666 were in the UK and Ireland, 125 were in Canada, and others were in Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, Serbia, Belgium, France, the Caribbean, Malaysia, and Fiji. So this was a wide-reaching project for sure. Carnegie's library endowment led to the establishment of about 75 to 80% of the libraries in communities across the United States, and by the end of his life, he had given away $300 million or 90% of his wealth in total, and of course, a subset of that was for the libraries. What's really important in this is that Carnegie didn't assume full responsibility for the construction of new libraries and branches. Rather, he stipulated that communities have to provide sites for the libraries and governments have to commit to providing salaries for staff and maintaining the libraries. Additionally, Carnegie libraries could not rely solely on private funds, but it required public funds as well. So this was really important because it ensured that the libraries would actually be a part of the community and would continue to receive funding after that initial donation. If you want to learn more about this, I'm going to link a Bowery Boys podcast episode on this topic that's really fantastic. There you have it, a short history of libraries around the world and, of course, a particular focus on libraries in the United States. I hope this episode inspires you to appreciate the easy and free access that we have to books and that you stop by your local library soon. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Stories New and Old podcast on your platform of choice. You can follow me on Instagram to get teasers for new episodes, and you can check out my blog for more great content. If you're so inclined, please rate and review this episode as it helps me come up with new ideas and is a wonderful way for you to support the podcast. Thanks for listening to Stories New and Old with me, Alyssa. I will see you next time.